Okay. So, humor in the tradition of George. Babylon B. Worship bands sliced into pieces by overpowered lasers. Sacramento, California is what's being called a freak catastrophe. The worship team was sliced into pieces when the laser was turned up too high. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. And then uh, local teenager begs Jesus to return, but just not too soon. <laughs> Maybe right after his wedding night. So. <laughs> All right. George, is that okay? That's good. All right. Although there was one I sent John this, or Josh this week. Okay. And that was, a, the is it, was it too risque for me? No, it, it was the church's his, his entire statement of, of belief. Oh, I had that when you weren't here that. I had it. Which was from U2 lyrics? Oh, no, U2 lyrics, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah I saw that, okay. <laughs> okay, last week, if you were, were here or weren't here, uh, quickly we got so much to cover, but I always like to review a little bit, because that's what I do. Chapter 9, uh, David is consolidate his kingdom he's kind of resting he says oh yeah I, I promised Jonathan this promise is there anybody from Saul's family left or Jonathan's family uh, Ziba uh, he calls to Ziba and he brings to mind Mephibosheth the crippled son remember the nurse is holding the baby and when she hears that Jonathan and Saul has uh, been killed she drops the baby becomes crippled that's Mephibosheth and so in this week's lesson Mephibosheth shows up again and, uh, but he, anyway, he gives, he gives Mephibosheth all the land that belonged to Saul. And he lives at the palace, and he tells Ziba, you're the servant, you and your sons and your servants will now farm Mephibosheth's land, and, but Mephibosheth's going to stay with me. And then David goes off, and, you know, every, it seems like every time there's something, they defeat the Ammonites over and over and over again. So that happened last week as well. But remember, uh, before they defeat him, the king of the Ammonites dies, and David says, I'm going to send an emissary to extend my sympathies. He sends people over. And what do the Ammonites do to him? They humiliate him. He says, there's got to be a conspiracy here. They're not, they're not really here to extend sympathy. They're here to spy us out. They cut off half their beards, and they do what else? Make it a little windy for them to walk around because they cut off their robes in the back. And so there's nothing back there. So it's very shameful for these men. They've lost half their beard. They go back to Jericho and David says, wait there till the beard grows back. Get some more clothes on and uh, I'll take care of it. So then he sends Joab and they defeat the Ammonites. Then the David and Bathsheba story. It's springtime when kings go to war. Except David didn't go to war, did he? He had the army over, laying siege to a city. And uh, he's up, it says on late afternoon after a nice nap. Now, those of you who are over 65 or who are retired understand one thing. An afternoon nap is a terrific thing. Get in from golf. You have a nice shower. You lie down on the sofa. Notice I didn't say lay down on the sofa. You lie down on the sofa. Correct? All you English aficionados? Are there any English aficionados in you? Yeah. All right. Chalk one up for the old guy, right? So you lie down on the sofa. You have a nice 30-minute nap. It refreshes the soul. 
It's wonderful. But I don't know how long he slept, but it says he got up from the nice nap. He took a stroll on the roof of the palace. Beautiful Bathsheba, taking a bath. Now, whether or not she knew she was being watched or she should have known she was being watched, we don't know. But she shielded. He just looked over real uh, high. But anyway, so he, he's, uh, in, he's overcome by his desire. He sends for her and takes what was not his. Interestingly, we have no dialogue with Bathsheba recorded in this chapter. You don't know if she resisted. You don't know what she said. You don't know whether he, he took her by force or she simply succumbed to him because he was king. After all, he's the king. But then he does what? He compounds the error by doing what? Uriah. Now, who was Uriah? He's one of the 30 brave men. Later on, you read about the 30 in uh, chapter 23 or 4. But who is he? What is he? Hittite. And who are the Hittites? They're not Israelites. And so, interestingly, Bathsheba, an Israelite woman from the tribe of Judah, is married to a non-Israelite. So as you read all these stories, remember as they go into the promised land, what did God tell them to do or not do? Don't intermarry. Don't give your sons and daughters to the other tribe, these people. You're supposed to run them out, get them out. But it was not a it was not a easy thing and they didn't do it. And so here you have Bathsheba, a woman of Judah, married to Uriah, but later he's named as one of the 30 brave men who was around David. So he's trusted. And so David calls in a trusted member of his elite corps of, of protectors and sends him out to the front after he tries to get him to go home and have uh, relationships with his wife so that he won't have to take responsibility for the baby she's now going to have. He won't do it because of his honor. He's sent back to the front lines. Joab takes care of him, puts him out front, withdraws, he's killed. And then the confrontation with Nathan. You are the man. All this brought to mind this week, you, you, those of you who are my age, you will remember a TV show in the 50s. Here's the tagline. Everything is as it was except you are there. Walter Cronkite. They dramatized all these famous things. You, and right in the middle of it, Walter Cronkite says, say Julius, as in Julius Caesar, what are you thinking now that Brutus, yada, yada, yada. And they would talk as though Walter Cronkite could interview these historical characters. Wouldn't you like to be Walter Cronkite and be able to jump say David what are you thinking about now but Nathan the prophet from now on the sword will be a constant threat to your family I will cause your household to rebel against you and your wife and I'll give your wives to another another man he will go to bed with them in public view this is in chapter 11 and you are forgiven you won't die for this sin. You are forgiven. You won't die. But guess what? You're going to suffer a lot of consequences. In our own lives, that is often the case, isn't it? 
some we do something that we really didn't want to do or shouldn't have done and it may come back to haunt us we're forgiven but it's kind of like the scene in old brother where art thou you know it says why are they still chasing us because the preacher said we was forgiven <laughs> and he says well what's their name what are they name? Everett, why are they still checking? Is it Everett? Everett, because I don't know that Everett. John, it's Ernest, but your dad's Everett, right? So why, why are they still chasing it? Well, you know, you may be forgiven by the Lord, but the state of Mississippi still has. <laughs> so, uh, so you may be forgiven. So anyway, we don't have, you know, again, we don't have any details of the liaison. We're going to have, in this week's lesson, we're going to have a lot more details and dialogue in the very next chapter as all of this that you had last week plays in view. All right. So, this week we're going to talk about the events surrounding Tamar, Amnon, and Absalom, taking what is not yours by force, the planning for revenge, revenge realized, Absalom's estrangement, Absalom's rebellion, Absalom's defeat. So that is a lot to cover in 30 minutes. This was, I apologize for this very poor uh, technology transition, but the lineage of David, Jesse's his father from the tribe of, of Judah, remember Ruth is, uh, what's Ruth? Moabite, not, again, not an Israelite, but a Moabite, is in the lineage of David and thus in the lineage of Jesus, but so is Bathsheba. Uh, today, you've got Amnon, who is the son of David through Ahinoam, one of the first wives of David. Absalom and Tamar are the children of Micah, or Micah, and David. Um, and then also, Joab, who plays such a key role in David's life, is actually his nephew, right? David's sister, Zeruiah. Through, an, through a, another woman besides his mother. So it's really, Azariah would be David's half-sister, and Joab is her son. So that would be David's nephew, I guess, or half-nephew. <laughs> Whatever. Can you be a half-nephew or a real nephew? Okay. So again, all the, again, again, you'd like to be, you are there and just be able to drop in on palace life with all of these wives all of these children, it's only human that they'd be jockeying for position. What, well, he did that yesterday. What does that mean? That, you know, David said this. Well, what does that mean? He didn't include me in that. So uh, all, the, all the intrigue. Chapter 13, Nathan's prophecy begins to unfold. I get wound up here and I'm... <clears throat> So Amnon is the oldest son, the apparent heir to the throne. Absalom is called handsome, long hair, cuts it once a year. His beautiful sister, Tamar, the mother, Micah, again, intrigue. She is not an Israelite either. She is the daughter of Telme, king of Geshur, which is a Philistine city. Remember David, when he's uh, fleeing Saul, when Saul is still king, he goes over and lives in the Philistine area at Ziklag. Makes a lot of friends. Well, apparently made, uh, 
friends with uh, Talmai, and so Makeb is one of the wives. So a Philistine wife has these two children. Amnon, the Bible says, became so obsessed with Tamar, fell in love with her. Again, it's his, it's, uh, his half-sister. And uh, he just becomes ill. It seemed impossible, it says, that he could ever fulfill his love for her. But luckily for Amnon, he has this crafty friend or cousin named Jonadab. Very helpful to him. And what does Jonadab tell him to do? Pretend to be sick. Hmm? Pretend to be sick so that Tamar would come over yeah. and nurse him. Yeah, ask, ask your dad, David, he's the king. Before that, he says, hey, you're the king's son. Why are you so down? You got everything. And so he says, pretend to be sick. Ask your father for Tamar to come over and help you out. And then you know what happens after that. Get her alone in your apartment and let nature take its course. Have you ever been, uh, have you ever wanted something so bad, so badly, I guess would be proper, that you became ill? Has it ever, you ever wanted something so bad that it weighed on your mind that it literally makes you sick. The stress that that brings on. You can see, you can see the kind of uh, stress in the athlete's eyes at the, at the Olympics, can't you? When they, they can't quite achieve it. And they have to come to grips with it. They have worked and struggled and wanted something so, uh, they just want it so badly. They can't quite get it. And that's something that's legitimate for them to want, isn't it? What's the issue here with Amnon? What's his sin? Besides rape, I mean, rape's obvious. Coveting. Coveting, but coveting what? Something that's, you something that's, that's not yours to have. You know, back in uh, Exodus twenty seventeen, when the Ten Commandments were given, it says, don't covet what? Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's animals, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's automobile, your neighbor's job. It's something, covet, you know, coveting means to, to desire something that looks good. Uh, is there anything wrong with really wanting something, uh, to achieve something? You know, as Americans, we've been taught to strive to achieve to, to, to do the very best we can. We look at, that's what uh, coaches teach their athletes. Uh, it says, you know, you're not going to be perfect, but we want you to achieve what? To the best of your ability, what you can achieve. So is it wrong to covet something or want something at all? Or is it strictly looking at wanting something that you're not supposed to have? Not, because here again, uh, I think marrying your sister was not a generally a thing you did. And certainly raping somebody is not something that you did either. Okay. So anyway, so he calls her in there. The plan goes forward. 
She's making the bread. She, the, it's, it, the way it's described, it's like a dumpling, isn't it? She's got uh, balls of dough and they're dropped, and they're, so it's like a dumpling. She's doing her part. He continues, the plan unfolds. He dismisses the servants. Now, probably some servants of hers came, perhaps. His servants, they, they were sent out. And he says, bring them to the bedroom. Now, as we look at Tamar and the response, let's look at 2 Samuel 13. So contrast this event with Bathsheba. Down starting in uh, verse 10. Now bring the food into my bedroom, feed it to me here. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me. No, my brother, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. You know what a serious crime it is to do such a thing in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it. He will let you marry me. So here we have uh, the dialogue from Tamar. Don't do it. It's a tremendous sin. You'll be called the great, one of the greatest fools in Israel if you go through with it. Here's an out. If you feel so strongly, talk to your father, our father, and he will let you marry me, even though it would probably be an exception to the general rule of marrying sisters. Be a half-sister. But, verse 14, Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And then what happened? Immediately his love turned to hate. Sometimes as you struggle for something and you work and you work and you work and you think you want it, you want it, you want it, you want it, then you get it and what? Is that all there is to that? Now what do I do? You build something up in your mind, you know. It's like me, I, I had my first Golden Rule barbecue in 1952 <laughs> when we drove my grandfather over to Birmingham to get his cataract surgery. We stopped. I'd never had store-bought barbecue. And to this day, if I smell that smoke anywhere, I got to have it. I got to have a fix. My car is going to drive in there. But, you know, we have it, and then we drive on our, our merry way. But... Uh, you build something up in your mind. It's so great. And you think, well, am I imagining things? Or is it, those cooks just not quite as good as they used to be in 1952. <laughs> but Tamar, Amnon wouldn't let her, uh, wouldn't list her, he rapes her. And then he says, get out of here. And Tamar says, no, no, to reject me now is a greater wrong than what you've already done. Again, there's another out. When you rape somebody, the law uh, provided that you could pay a fine, in effect, <coughs> and marry the person. There's still a way out of, for us. Tamar's giving Amnon a way out. Don't heap scorn upon me by taking me this way and then throwing me out. But he wouldn't have it. He shouts for his servant, throw her out. So he puts her out. 
But to Tamar's credit, what happens? She doesn't go quietly. She could have agreed to go out of that house, straighten her robes, put her, check her face, go back home, and possibly nobody would have known it. But what does she do when she gets outside? The beautiful robe she wore, which signified a virgin, she tore it, ashes on her head, she goes back home covering her face. So everybody knew something had happened. And again, the intrigue of the palace, the talk of the palace, she doesn't go quietly. David finds out about it, but what? Doesn't do a thing. He's upset, he's angry, they say. And uh, when she goes back, she also tells Absalom. And Absalom says, just be calm, don't worry about it. Verse 20. Tamar lived as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. When King David heard what happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about it, he hated Amnon deeply. Okay, so the intrigue starts. Absalom's response, he plans for revenge. Two years pass, and what happens? He gets his chance. Goes to David, let me invite everybody over to a feast, including Amnon. And they get over there, everybody's partying, and he takes care of Amnon. Kills him. So just as Nathan predicted, you're going to have violence in your household. It's starting to unfold. Uh, chapter 14, after uh, Absalom takes care of Amnon, he flees. And where does he flee? Again, his mother is a Philistine. So where does he flee? He flees over to his mother's father, his grandfather. Grandparents are good for that, right? If you had a, a grandson, you know, uh, Jake and Hank and Will and Ben, got an, they've got an open invitation to come to our house anytime. Caroline, Tillman, William, the same thing. Any of them, all seven of them. So he flees over to grandfather and he stays over there. How long? Three years. Okay. Three years. So when, when things start to go wrong in a family, oftentimes the solutions take a long time to work out. Right? Words are said. Feelings are hurt. Oftentimes relationships don't get repaired in this lifetime sometimes. It says David wants to see Absalom, but makes no move toward reconciliation. Oftentimes, reconciliation needs a helper. And I'm sure all of us maybe have seen instances, either within our own family or with, even with our children. We may see children who become uh, angry or upset with a friend because something has happened and you see what happened. The two can't get back together because of pride or whatever. Uh, in this case, 
David wanted to get his son back. It says he he had gotten over the grief for Amnon. He wanted to see Absalom, but he was not making any move. So Joab, again, the army commander, steps in and invites a woman, a wise woman. Now, I assume that wasn't very hard to do and find a wise woman. wasn't hard at all. There's a lot of them. Because <laughs> they have all the answers, right? Okay. Get a little coffee to keep my... Get me on a caffeine high here. So the woman from Tekoa, Joab, the warrior nephew, steps in. He gets this woman who had a reputation, as the Bible says, for great wisdom. But interestingly, he doesn't say, okay, in your wisdom, come up with a plan here. What does Joab do? Here's what you're going to say. He, he hands her a, a script, in other words. Okay. Uh, Maybe, you know, he says, you're wise, so I'm trusting you to figure out how to, how to say this in just the right way. And so anyway, she goes and tells a story, uh, sort of like Nathan did, you know, when, when David sinned with uh, Bathsheba. She begins to tell this uh, parable, if you will. And then he says, oh, goodness, I'll, I'll, I'll promise to take care of this. And then she said, well, then, verse 13, why don't you do as much for all the people of God as you've promised to do for me? You have convicted me by making a decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. And then here's a, as she, as she says this, verse 14 is an, a, again a very nice picture of God's grace. And so often you say, people say, there's no grace in the Old Testament. Look, verse 14. She says, all of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. That is why God tries to bring us back when we have been separated from Him. He does not sweep away the lives of those He cares about. And neither should you. A very nice picture of God's grace. <clears throat> but she says, I've come to plead for you, for my son, because of my life. Perhaps the king will listen and rescue us from those who would cut us off from God's people. Okay. And then he asked her, uh, verse 19, Did Joab send you to do this? Verse 20, again. He did it to place the matter before you in a different light. But you are as wise as an angel of God. You understand everything that happens. You know, it's, it's uh, as you have children as you deal with the relationships at work, trying to figure out how to present an idea or an analysis of a situation, oftentimes you have to say it in a different way to get people to see the solution, don't you? And she says here to David, he sent me over here to tell, you, tell it to you in a different way so that you might see what's really happening. You're unable to see the situation because you're too close to it. It's in your own family. And so this is going to help you see it in a new light and perhaps overcome your resistance and be reconciled to your son Absalom. And so in verse 21, he says, All right, bring the young man back. But, uh, we were in some of the management training I had one time, it talks about when you, when you use words, but, that's a, that's a dummy message. You can do this and this and this, 
But when you start adding conditions, you can bring him back, but what, what did he say? Don't bring him into my presence. So this is not really reconciliation yet. It's a step toward it. Okay. So he does come back. And he's back for ooh, another couple of years, isn't it? He's not in David's presence. He hasn't seen him, so he doesn't feel like he's been forgiven. And he, he's, uh, Absalom calls for Joab to come see him. He wants Joab's help. Joab refuses to come a couple of times. And he says, all right, well, I'll get his attention. <laughs> I'll get his attention. He sends his servant out and sets fire to Joab's barley field. Again, we're living in an agricultural society. Crops are money. And when you lose some of your money, all of a sudden, wait a second, what's going on here? And so Joab does come to see him. And uh, he says, so why did he bring me back if he isn't going to see me? Go see, on, go see David on my behalf. And Joab does and gets David to see him. Finally, father and son are back together. Why did you bring me back? Verse 25, if you're not going to see me. All right. Anything, any questions? Lots of material. So Absalom is back. He's reconciled. He's, he now says, all right, uh, Amnon is uh, dead. So I must be next in line to be king. He, he adopts some of the trappings of the throne. Says he gets a chariot with horses and 50 men to run in front of him. Not 5, 10, 15, or 20, but 50 men. Here comes the king. The king is coming. And so he uh, assumes those trappings, even though he hasn't been told by anybody that he's going to be heir. And then he begins to sit at the gate of the city and does what? Every time somebody comes up and says, why are you here? And they would explain the situation. And I'm sure he probably thought, well, you know, if I was king, you know. And apparently David was not performing the, the judgments very uh, routinely or on schedule. And so judgments were going by the wayside. And he says, you know, if I was king, exactly, I would take care of this immediately for you. It reminds you a little bit of how David ingratiated himself to Judah when he was over in the Philistine area. He'd take spoils over to, so they'd think kindly of him. And so his activities at the gate... So four years pass. He has, finally has, believes he has enough uh, followers. He asks David, can I go off and have a feast at Hebron where he was born? I need to fulfill a vow I made years ago. And so David finally says, yes. He goes to Hebron and he sends out messengers. Come join with me. I'm going to declare myself king over Israel. Rebellion against it. And so uh, word gets back to David that Absalom has done this. And David decides to get out of Jerusalem. It says that Ittai and the Gittites, along with the king's bodyguard, accompany David out of town. Now who are the Gittites? 
This guy here, Ittai, is listed again as one of the 30 men that surround David close to him. The Gittites are, tell us, tell us what they're not. They're not Israelites, all right. They're probably Philistines from the Gath area, what most of the reference would, would tell you. There's 600 of them. David says, you know, why are you coming with me? And, and interestingly, in uh, verse 21 of chapter 6, is it 16? No, no, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 21. Ittai makes the vow, I will go wherever you go, no matter what happens, whatever it means, life or death. Sounds almost like Ruth, doesn't it? Very loyal. The priest, a couple of the priests have the ark. They're going with him. They said, no, no, take it back. And you guys can be spies for me. Send me messages when you see what Absalom's doing. Uh, from over at, uh, Be uh, from Hebron, Absalom sends for Ahithophel, who's one of uh, David's advisors. Come over and give me advice. You see the instant where Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth, remember that was last week? Ziba come out and says, <clears throat> Mephibosheth didn't want to come. He's staying to support uh, Absalom. And so David welcomes Ziba. And then this is one of the strangest things that's in the Bible. Shimei curses David and throws rocks at him. Now this is, a, you know, again, you'd like to be Walter Cronkite. Say, Shimei, what are you doing? Well, I'm throwing rocks at the king. I'm cursed because I'm, I'm one of Saul. I'm a family member of Saul. I've hated David for taking away Saul's kingdom. And I'm throwing rocks at him. Now, Joab wants to take care of Shimei right here, doesn't he? And, and David says, well, you know, if he's throwing rocks, it must mean that God wants him to leave him alone. And then Hushai, uh, who's going along another one of David's advisors, David sends him back and says, go back to Absalom and keep me informed and help confuse Ahithophel. And so Hushai goes back to Absalom, and as he arrives, he says, Long live the king. And Absalom thinks he's talking about him. <laughs> well, he's not. He's, he's loyal to David. All right. Um, in uh, chapter 17, verse 14, as they're giving advice, it says the Lord had arranged to defeat the council of Ahithophel because uh, in order to defeat the council of Ahithophel. His first advice Ahithophel gives to Absalom is do what? Go sleep with your father. David had left what nine or ten, ten, ten concubines behind to take care of the palace after they'd fleed Jerusalem. And Ahithophel's first advice is Go take your father's concubines, sleep with them in public to show that you're in power, heap scorn upon David, let everyone know you're beyond reconciliation. So that was Hithophel's first advice. And did Absalom follow it? 
says he did. It says he went up on the roof of the palace again, perhaps in the same area where David first saw Bathsheba and conceived of the uh, liaison with her and slept with the concubines in tents up there on the roof. And then uh, he asked for advice a second time, and Ahithophel tells him, okay, pursue David right now with the soldiers you have and kill him. He says, well, that's a good plan. Let's see what Hushai has to say. And he calls Hushai and says, uh, what do you say? And Hushai says, well, I think Ahithophel has made a mistake this time. Why don't you assemble the whole army of Israel and you'll have an overwhelming force at that point, then go after David. Well, of course, that took a lot of time, gave David a chance to escape. And that's when, in chapter 17, verse 14, it says the Lord arranged for that advice to uh, stop Ahithophel. Okay, chapter 18. Absalom, of course, once he's given uh, David a chance to uh, escape, to get his thoughts together, David gets uh, Joab and his army and the Ittai and the Gittites, divides the force into thirds, and they go back and fight and overcome Absalom's army. And, 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 and uh, who, who kills Absalom? Joab. Whenever there's a problem, Joab is the go-to guy. David draws up the battle plans, divides the army into thirds, the battle in the forest of Ephraim. There's a strange uh, verse in there that says that the forest claimed more casualties than the, the battle. George, what, what did you, how did you, what did you conclude from that? Uh, yeah, well, well, one was absolute, of course, because it got caught mm. in the tree. But, you know, I guess my understanding is people always thought the same. So, you know, just the, the hazards of fighting in a forest. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're, <clears throat> they did. Most of the time, this was a very primitive uh, situation. You, you didn't have a lot of, you had spears, bows and arrows. So they'd go out and stand in an open field and battle each other. Here, the battle took place in a forest. And apparently, just the severity of the terrain, uh, it says there were more casually, maybe they ran into trees, fell over rocks. I don't know what happened. But they killed, killed their own people because they couldn't see. Couldn't see who they were shooting at. But the battle in the forest, and as Absalom is going through there, riding on his mule, says his, his head or his hair, some versions say hair, some say head, gets caught on a limb. He's literally suspended between heaven and earth, it says, dangling there, not dead. And then uh, Joab comes along and says, why are you waiting? What, what, you, what are you waiting for? He kills him, stabs him, and then does what with the body? Puts him in a hole and puts, puts rocks over it. He doesn't get buried back in the family plot. David's reaction. That famous Absalom, Absalom. Apparently loved him very much. Couldn't bring himself to do reconciliation for so long. Uh, now next week's chapter 19, you'll see the where Joab has to come in and kind of act like a man, <laughs> essentially. Uh, when uh, he comes in because he keeps grieving, he won't do anything. He's so, he's so paralyzed by his grief for Absalom. 
So anyway, this is this is a tough rape. I think I have to. You have to admire Tamar for being brave, trying to get her brother to do the right thing. Her bravery uh, in not keeping quiet. You know, we've had high-profile cases here in town in the last couple of years of uh, a situation that would have never become public had the men not filmed it and texted it to somebody. Because the woman was so uh, drunk, she didn't even realize she'd been raped. But uh, really tragic, tragic events. We're fast coming down to the end. Next week is 19 through 20, uh, 19 through 21. So 19, 20, 21 next week. And then the following week will be the grand finale. Any comments, questions at all? Yeah, just, I guess one thing I was thinking as you're going through all this, going back to Josh's sermon this morning. You know, talk about a failure. I mean, David was a great king, but in so many parts of his life, in his family, you know, just death, murder, rape, you know, just, but, but he comes through it all. You know, and he, he always turns to God. He's never, he never tries to justify his actions. He always admits his sin and, and, and it's a sin against God. And like the woman from Tekoa told David, uh, you know, David, I mean, God, for those he loves, is always trying to bring you back. God, that's what God's grace does. It, it, it covers it, trying to bring you back into his presence. Thanks.